Mexico wants to run the drug war its way. Today, Wednesday, May 1st, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The Mexican government now wants all communications with U.S. officials funneled through its interior ministry. This expert says that could hurt the sharing of sensitive information. You could imagine that agents would be a little bit more reluctant to share it with a bureaucracy in Mexico City than, say, counterparts they've been working with side by side. Plus, how the people of Darwin, Australia, deal with the fiercest predators on the planet. Crocodiles are very dangerous, so you might want to stay away from the water's edge when your parents tell you to to be safe. And later, why former NBA player John Amici waited until retirement to come out. I was easily replaceable and might lose my job that I felt I had worked really hard to earn. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman in Boston, and this is The World. President Obama heads to Mexico tomorrow, and we'll be digging into how Mexico is trying to steer discussions the way they want them to go. But first, we want to touch on some news here in Boston related to the marathon bombings just over two weeks ago. Just as the city is getting back to normal, federal authorities announced that three additional suspects have been charged in connection with the case. The three are 19-year-old college students, friends of the younger bombing suspect Jokart Sarnayevs at University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. They're charged with conspiring to obstruct justice and making false statements to federal investigators. The world's Andrea Crossan has been going through the federal complaint against them. Andrea, what's in this document? Marco, it makes for some interesting reading. The details of the charges are some of the evidence collected regarding these three suspects. Two of the suspects are from Kazakhstan and one is a U.S. citizen. They are Azmat Tazarkayev and Diaz Karabayev, and the third man is Robel Filipos. The document lays out that these three men were close friends with bomber Zokar Zanayev and that they socialized together, hung out in dorm rooms, watched movies together, things that you would expect 19-year-olds to do. Right. And specifically, what does a complaint accuse these men of doing? Well, all three of them have admitted to removing a backpack from their friends or Nayev's dorm room. Uh, two of the men admitted that they agreed to get rid of it after concluding that seeing photographs of Zarnayev on the news, that that was their friend and that our, their friend was one of the marathon bombers. Right. Of course, he's still a suspect. Did officials manage to recover this backpack? They did. It was recovered from a landfill. The backpack was inside a black garbage bag. And actually, the, there are photos of the contents of this backpack as a part of the criminal complaint. And Marco, it includes a homework assignment sheet determined to be from uh, Zarnayev, and it was one of the classes he was taking at UMass Dartmouth. So any idea why they did this? Nothing specifically, but one thing that's interesting that kind of pops up throughout the criminal complaint is it refers to the three men wanting to hope to help Zarnayev out because they did not want Zarnayev to, quote, get in trouble. Um, and there are also interesting details like how the men were texting each other in the days following the bombing. And when the image of Zarnayev was on the television, Kardayev, one of his friends, uh, texted him and said that he looked like the suspect on TV. Mm. Zarnayev's response was included, LOL. 
well or laugh out loud. Right. Of course, none of this right now uh, appears to shed any light on the motivations of the alleged attackers. Um, As to these three men uh, now in custody, what's likely to happen to them? Well, uh, earlier today, the two uh, men from Kazakhstan waived their bail. Uh, and uh, in terms of the charges against them, they could be looking up to five to eight years in prison, depending on the severity and what the authorities believe is the importance of um, the lies or the evidence that they are accused of uh, uh, either uh, removing from uh, the dorm room or uh, the lies that they may have told to investigators. Right. OK. The world's Andrea Crossan. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. President Obama is no doubt keeping a close eye on the ongoing Boston bombings investigation, but he's also preparing for his visit to Mexico, which starts tomorrow. The visit is happening just as Mexico is changing the way it cooperates with the U.S. in the fight against drug traffickers. The world's William Troop has been keeping an eye on this story. William, how is uh, Mexico changing its drug war strategy and its cooperation with the U.S.? Well, uh, earlier this week, Mexico's foreign ministry came out and said that it's basically no longer going to allow uh, U.S. law enforcement officials to have direct access to their counterparts in Mexican agencies. And so from now on, uh, any such cooperation will have to first go through Mexico's interior ministry, which will act as a coordinator on the Mexican side. And they say this is because under President Calderon, uh, cooperation with the U.S. became so widespread and decentralized that it led to Mexican agencies uh, cooperating with the U.S. On, on one hand and not knowing what another agency was doing with the U.S. on the other and literally, you know, left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And they said this led to problems on the Mexican side. Right. Now, President Calderon is no longer there in Mexico. It's uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, who's president. I mean, this move could be hugely significant. And already uh, the the shift has uh, reportedly upset U.S. officials who had grown pretty used to that widespread cooperation in recent years. How will this impact the drug war then? I put that question to Shannon O'Neill, who follows Mexico uh, for the Council on Foreign Relations. And she agreed that this coordination issue was a problem on the Mexican side. But she says uh, there are going to be some real drawbacks. One of the biggest drawbacks would be, uh, particularly with sensitive information on ongoing active cases or the like, you could imagine that agents would be a little bit more reluctant to share it with a bureaucracy in Mexico City than, say, counterparts they've been working with side by side. Uh, So you might see less intelligence sharing, particularly sensitive information. You know, and I would also add to that that uh, U.S. officials uh, over time will literally know their counterparts less personally. And that could uh, lead to some problems because historically in Mexico, there have been issues about uh, drug cartels infiltrating uh, or corrupting Mexican institutions. Right. Now, aside from becoming less reliant on the U.S. for the drug war, what about Mexico's actual drug war strategy? How how are they going to change that? Well, everybody I've talked to uh, tells me that this is still vague, still being developed. Uh, But it looks like in the future under President Peña Nieto, Mexico will be steering away from this notion of going after uh, the heads of the cartels. Uh, which just seem to generate more violence. So instead, Mexico will be looking to contain the cartels more uh, with a variety of means. Um, Here's how uh, George W. Grayson, uh, a Mexico expert at the College of William & Mary in Virginia, explained it to me. Calderon employed the broadsword in trying to decapitate cartels. That uh, broadsword now, I think, is going to be converted into a scalpel Grayson says that means fewer big headline arrests and killings and more use of surveillance and technology to make it harder for the cartels to do their business. 
I mean, William, this is a war that is happening just to our southern border. It's resulted in thousands of deaths. It's been going on for years. Why is Mexico making these changes now? Well, for one thing, it has to be said that Mexico as a nation is exhausted from six years of drug war under President Calderon and and the horrible death toll that, that came with it. Uh, Mexico's new president, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, from the beginning has said that he doesn't want the drug war to be his only focus. He wants to put a spotlight on, on other parts of Mexico, more positive parts of Mexico. And a big one there is the economy uh, and its trade with the United States, which is huge. And one thing that struck me about when um, President Obama was asked about this yesterday at his news conference, he seemed to be kind of in tune with that. And uh, here's what he had to say about his upcoming visit. A lot of the focus is going to be on economics. Uh, we've spent so much time on security issues uh, uh, between the United States and Mexico that sometimes I think we forget this is a massive trading partner uh, responsible for huge amounts of, of uh, commerce and huge numbers of jobs on both sides of the border. Now, uh, President Obama said that doesn't mean they're not going to talk security and, and the drug war, but he, he said he's not going to judge yet how the changes in Mexico are going to affect future uh, bilateral efforts between Washington and Mexico City until he do- goes down there tomorrow and talks to President Peña Nieto himself. All right. We'll see how that trip goes. The world's William Troop. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Most of the trade between the U.S. and Mexico involves big multinationals. It's much harder for small Mexican entrepreneurs to sell their products in the U.S., but those small business ties are important nonetheless, and the Mexican government is increasingly focusing on them. The world's Jason Margolis reports from Austin, Texas. Mexican entrepreneur Tanya Rodriguez ran a successful business distributing auto parts out of Mexico City. She's now trying to make a go of it in Austin. So far, she hasn't been nearly as productive in Texas. Because, of course, I moved to another country. I'm building community. I'm just getting settled. Even picking up my phone provider, you know, is, is a challenge right now. And then she'll have to learn the art of the business deal, American style. In Mexico, business transactions typically begin over lunch. And uh, we are talking a lunch that typically lasts at least two hours. There is not necessarily heavy drinking involved, but, you know. Luis Medina uh, is a dual citizen who has mastered the art of the deal in both cultures. He now heads a program in Austin run by the Mexican government called TECBA, an abbreviation for Technology Business Accelerator. The program brings Mexican startups to the U.S. and provides office space in a satellite building at the University of Texas. Our area goes from that door over there. and Right now, there are nine Mexican startups working here. Besides the free rent, they also get guidance from professors like Medina. Advice includes the pedestrian, things like how to open a bank account, get an ID, or fill up their tanks. In Mexico, you stop there and somebody puts the gas in. But here, you have to do everything. So, <laughs> Once those problems are resolved, Medina and other professors help companies dive into marketing strategies. If they don't have access to experienced business people that know how the business are conducted here, they can make very expensive mistakes. One of the success stories here is Hector Gomez McFarland. He and his Mexican business partners came up with an idea. Put radio frequency ID chips on hammers, wrenches, and screwdrivers. And with RFID readers inside the toolbox, we identify what tool, uh, who has it, date and time, etc. He wanted to sell this product to the aerospace industry in the U.S. It's a scary thought, but mechanics have left tools behind. Forgotten tools in a 
turbine of the aircraft, for example, or the engine or the cabin. The U.S. Air Force was worried enough about this potential problem to give McFarlane his first substantial contract, a $28,000 deal. From there, the TechBa program helped McFarlane connect with other American companies. Then we grew up to uh, 400000 then 900000 This and isn't just good for McFarlane's wallet. It's also good for the U.S. economy. Alexandra Starr with the New America Foundation says it's in our best interest to create more opportunities for Mexican immigrants to come here and sell us their stuff. Mexico has had its problems over the years, but it's a dynamic economy. You know, it's growing. And it's to our benefit to have those trade links. And those links are really forged by individuals. Add it all up, some 6 million American jobs rely on trade with Mexico. The Mexican government has introduced several programs to help its small and medium-sized businesses invest in the United States. Some local U.S. groups and municipalities are doing the same. Alexandra Starr points to the city of San Antonio as a place that's doing it well. Local businesses and the city are investing in small Mexican ventures. The city's approach has been to get entrepreneurs to at least spend several months in San Antonio when they're establishing their businesses and hopefully have them make it a semi-permanent residence. The biggest barrier facing those Mexican entrepreneurs is just getting here. At this point, we really don't have a visa for immigrants who want to start businesses in the United States. It's not impossible to get a visa as a foreign entrepreneur, but it's not easy. Luis Medina, who works for the Mexican government in Austin, helps Mexican entrepreneurs start companies in the U.S., then get themselves hired by those new companies. Mexican entrepreneurs could benefit from an easier path. And you can be certain they'll be eagerly monitoring what President Obama and his Mexican counterpart, Peña Nieto, will be discussing this week. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Coming up, living with a deadly neighbor who's got a lot of sharp teeth. You're listening to The World. We're online at theworld.org and tweeting at PRI The World. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of WomenHeart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. For the past month or so, we've been traveling to Australia with our partner program, Nova. Today, we come to our final stop, the northern city of Darwin. It's home to one of the deadliest predators on the planet, the saltwater crocodile, which can grow up to 20 feet long. Getting humans and these giant reptiles to coexist has not been easy, but a government program is doing its best to keep the peace. Nova's Ari Daniel Shapiro has our story. Graham Webb has worked as a zoologist in northern Australia for four decades, and he says that to understand the situation with saltwater crocodiles today, you have to know some history. Back around 1950, Darwin was a small town in the heart of crocodile country, and the animals, they had no protection. Nobody cared about crocodiles, obviously. They were just vermin, they were pests. In fact, killing crocodiles provided people with income. The animals were sold and turned into things like handbags and shoes. Between 1946 and about 1958, something like 80,000 skins went out, and then the hunting just kept on going. 
With so many saltwater crocodiles being killed, their population plummeted. By the 1970s, the animals were in danger of extinction in Australia, so the government banned hunting and the export of crocodile products. Webb says these measures were implemented to conserve the animals as an economic resource, not because there was some newfound love of crocodiles. But the public didn't object to protecting the animals. It was a bit like saying, do you want to protect the unicorns or something? Because there were so few crocodiles around. But today, things are very different. Jennifer Cunningham is a ranger with the Government Wildlife Agency in Australia's Northern Territory. She says the protection efforts work so well that there are now just as many crocodiles in and around Darwin as there are people, a 100,000 of each. We are living with crocodiles more than ever before. The population of Darwin has grown. The rural area of Darwin has spread right into crocodile territory. And as you can imagine, that can be dangerous. Just how dangerous became clear in 2009. An 11-year-old girl named Bryony Goodzel was swimming in a rural part of Darwin, in a spot her parents and grandparents had told her was safe when she was killed by a crocodile. Other people had died before, but the death of this little girl, so close to the population center in this part of Australia, hit residents hard. Cunningham shows me the official government report investigating Goodsell's death. It says we must face the reality that dangerous man-eating animals live amongst us, not just in the outback, but in populated areas of Darwin. And so the government launched a new effort to help people live safely with crocodiles. It's called Be Crocwise, and Cunningham helps lead it. She works to educate those at greatest risk, fishermen, indigenous communities, and children. On a recent Friday, Cunningham visited Humpty Doo Primary School in rural Darwin. She stood before a room filled with third and fourth graders. What I'm here for today is to talk to you about crocodiles and crocodile safety. This school is where 11-year-old Bryony Goodzel, the girl who died in 2009, was a student. But Cunningham gives the same talk to schools across the region. What I'd like to know is whether you guys know anything about crocodiles. Crocodiles are very dangerous, so you might want to stay away from the water's edge when your when your parents tell you to to be safe. Um, they're dangerous, and they eat people. They do, and that is why I'm here today. Cunningham's talk offers practical safety messages. For instance, crocodiles can hold their breath up to an hour, which means that just because you don't see a crocodile lurking at the water's surface doesn't mean there aren't any there. And she warns that crocodiles can turn up just about any place there's water. Crocodiles move around using rivers like we use highways. So crocodiles can live in creeks. Crocodiles live where else? Name one place. Some can live in people's backyards. Sometimes they live in people's backyards, especially in the wet season. Cunningham's talk is also meant to instill respect for crocodiles. She explains that the animals are protected by law. It's illegal to tease a crocodile. It's true. It's illegal to feed a crocodile. It's illegal to catch a crocodile and kill it. And yet, not all saltwater crocodiles are protected. In fact, the government reserves the right to kill crocodiles it deems a menace. That's the job of wildlife ranger Tommy Nichols. Throughout Darwin's harbor, he and his team have set up a couple dozen crocodile traps and baited them with large chunks of wild boar. He approaches one of the traps on his boat. 
Yes, there is a small croc in there. The trapped crocodile is about six feet long. Nichols and his team remove the animal from the trap, zip tie and tape its mouth shut, and prepare to haul it off to a local croc farm where the animals are killed for their meat and skin. This crocodile may not have threatened anyone, but Nichols explains that the government policy is to remove all crocodiles from Darwin's residential areas and its harbor. Everything in these areas we take out, no tolerance. All the crocodiles go because of the recreational use, the amount of people that come down here and utilize this area. So it's a stop interaction between the public and crocodiles. Now, no one wants to stop all human interactions with crocodiles. The animals are a huge draw for tourists in the Northern Territory. Visitors pay to go on crocodile river cruises and tour crocodile parks. The economy here actually benefits from having a healthy crocodile population. And for that to continue, says zoologist Graham Webb, the public needs to feel safe. The worst thing that can happen for crocodile conservation is more attacks. If you think you're just going to have crocodiles out there eating people and everyone's going to put up with it, well, I've got news for you, they're not going to do it. And so the government's program to protect people from saltwater crocodiles, Webb says it's really an effort to protect crocodiles from people to ensure that public opinion doesn't turn against crocodiles again. By reducing the likelihood of an attack and by teaching kids who will one day be voting adults to appreciate these animals, the government hopes to guarantee a future for these valuable yet deadly creatures. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Darwin, Australia. And you've got to see the photo of Ari holding a six-foot crocodile, really. It's at theworld.org. And on PBS tonight, watch Nova to learn how Australia's amazing animal life evolved. It's the final episode in the Nova series, Australia's First Four Billion Years. All things being equal, sort of. That's the theme of the GeoQuiz today. In the Kreuzberg district of Berlin, women's rights advocates are taking back the streets, literally, or trying to, literally. An edict passed there in 2005 says no more streets can be named after men until there are an equal number of streets named for women. The work is cut out for them. The district has 375 streets and only 12 have women's names. Now the city's Jewish museum just happens to be in the district, and it was lobbying to name the courtyard in front of its new academy after a famous 18th century philosopher. But, you guessed it, he's a man. The city and the museum eventually agreed on a solution. They're going to name the square after the philosopher and his wife. So now all you have to do is name that 18th century German-Jewish philosopher, but you have to name his wife as well for parody. We'll have the answers later in the show. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, the battle for land in China. And former NBA player John Amici on his own coming out story and why he's so encouraged by Jason Collins' announcement. The sport can become a place that people can see you can be accepted, whoever you are, as an individual. That will seep into society. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org.
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The public announcement from NBA center Jason Collins that he is gay has mostly been met with overwhelming approval from fellow players, coaches, executives, even from the president. Here's Obama talking about it at a White House news conference yesterday. I'll say something about Jason Collins. I had a chance to, to talk to him yesterday. Uh, he's, he seems like a terrific young man. And, uh, yeah, I told him I couldn't be prouder. Uh, you know, one of the a, a extraordinary uh, measures of progress that we've seen in this country uh, has been uh, the recognition that uh, the LGBT community deserves uh, full equality, not just partial equality, uh, not just uh, tolerance, but uh, a recognition that they're fully a part of the American family. That was President Obama speaking yesterday. With me now on the line from Manchester in England is former NBA and international basketball player John Amici. John, uh, you're the first former NBA player to come out publicly. That was in 2007. Tell us what your reaction was to Jason Collins' announcement. I was very pleased. I was, um, and I am unnecessarily or at least undeservedly proud since I had no hand in what he's done. He and I spoke about a month ago about what he was planning on doing. He already had a very well-formed plan. I think he just wanted to be reassured that his assessment of the craziness of this week was right. And he was right. It was going to be crazy. Also that he was going to have the kind of impact on vulnerable people uh, that he had hoped. Mm, did you have any advice for him? He's not the kind of man who needs a handhold. He's a smart, eloquent, considered young man, and he had a great plan together for this, had, did it at the right time uh, for him, and certainly at a good time in history when uh, public opinion in America has shifted so that he could stand atop that shifting tide, if you like. John, did you ever consider coming out when you were playing, uh, and why didn't you, ultimately? I thought I would lose my job. Uh, it is still true that you can be fired in 29 states in America for being gay. Every state that I played in, every team that I played for was in a state where you could be fired for being gay. Wow. I played in Utah for a man who donated massive amounts of money to the Mormon church, which has donated massive amounts of money to anti-gay causes. Uh, so I, I was very wary of the fact that I was easily replaceable and might lose my job that I felt I had worked really hard to earn. I'm just curious, do you have a sense of how many gay men there are in the NBA and why are there still so few players who feel able to say that they are gay? I know quite a few athletes who are out to some extent, but not out to the public. I think the numbers idea is the straw man. This issue isn't important because there's some kind of tipping point that we can reach where the numbers are great enough that we have to accept them. If there's one, there's enough that we should be concerned about this issue. We should be concerned because sports has a power to inform society. It's not just a part of it. It's so powerful it can inform society. And if sport can evolve, if sport can become a place that people can see you can be accepted, who, whoever you are, that will seep into society. What about marketing? Does it make a difference in, in how a gay athlete can get sponsorships from big brands? I would imagine that Jason is in a position now where the shoe sponsors, the sports brands themselves will be fighting over each other to see who's going to get his name in there. That's a highly positive thing, I would say. I, I don't think it'll close many doors to any advertisers because anybody who wouldn't want him because of who he is, he wouldn't want to endorse anyway. But I just the idea that 
the reason that people don't come out is just a financial decision is, is erroneous. The reality is that when you are a professional athlete, you are seen very differently by people. So there are some athletes who aren't like Jason Collins, and if I can be so bold, not like myself. We have plans beyond sport. We have thoughts and ideas beyond putting a ball in a hole. But many athletes aren't that. Many are bound, constricted by the fact that their occupation is their definition, and they are deathly afraid of waking up one day and finding their definition rearranged because if they stop in their minds being a basketball player, if they stop being a professional football player, they are afraid that they'll stop being anything of value. One of the mistakes that everybody has made is people think that out individuals in whatever career field is the precursor to change. It is not the precursor to change. It is the result of change. John Amici, thanks so much for speaking with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was former NBA player John Amici. Now, let's shift gears and consider the poor farmer. When China's Communist Party came to power in 1949, it promised to lift farmers up and give them a better deal. It got rid of the feudal landlords and gave the land collectively back to farmers. Today, the state technically owns the land and farmers have renewable leases. But local officials regularly seize villagers' land and sell it to developers. It's happened to millions across China and is provoking a lot of unrest. The central government promises change is on the way. But as the world's Mary Kay Magsad reports, in part three of our series, China Past Due, change is not coming fast enough. The city of Chengdu has long been known for its tranquil parks and tea houses, its spicy food and salty humor. It's also known these days as one of two Chinese cities running pilot projects that are supposed to strengthen rural land rights for farmers. Chen Jiazi, vice president of Chengdu's Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, has advised the local government on land reform. He says the land originally belonged to the farmers, right? So the land rights have to go back to the farmers. If that happens, they'll invest more in the land, so their harvest will be better and they'll make more money, or they can trade the land or use it as collateral so they can do something else. Chengdu has started with trying to give farmers written title to their land, but that's not as easy as it sounds. Rural land in China is owned collectively by all members of a village. Individual farmers have 30-year renewable leases on their own plots, but few have the paperwork to prove it. To get written individual title, the land needs to be surveyed and demarcated, with disputes resolved. The central government says this will happen throughout China over the next five years at a cost of almost three billion dollars. Chengdu is supposed to be a success story. Six years into a pilot project meant to strengthen rural land rights, but when I tell Chen Jiazi I plan to go to a rural area south of town to talk to farmers, he seems nervous. You're just going to go and talk to them, he says. But they need to prepare. One of the farmers I meet the next day, Meng Guiyi, finds this amusing. <laughs> He says when reporters want to come to his village of Yao, local officials get their relatives or friends to pose as farmers and say whatever the government wants people to hear. And what does he want people to hear? Meng says he and others in his village already have written title to their land, but that didn't stop the local government from grabbing the land last summer. Officials offered farmers only a tiny fraction of the market rate. 
They weren't even going to pay for a year until the farmers gathered and protested. There's a lot of that going around in China. This protest was in January in the same county. Here, angry villagers are confronting the police, who beat some of them up. The villagers had found out that land they'd leased to a golf course for 20 years had been quietly sold to developers, and the villagers got nothing. Some 40 million farmers have been turfed off their land in similar ways throughout China over the past decade or so. Chen Jiazza at Chengdu's Chinese Academy of Social Sciences admits Chengdu's land reform efforts haven't been perfect, and he says there's a reason for that. First, you should understand the reform. Who be the loser? Local government. You understand? What he means is China's local governments depend on land sales to fund, on average, 40 percent of their budgets. That's because local governments have to give the central government the income tax revenue they collect locally, but they still have to finance all social services and infrastructure spending themselves. A few years back, many local officials realized they could solve their fiscal woes and make a tidy personal profit by taking land from farmers. They could then turn around and sell the land to developers for forty, fifty, even a hundred times what they paid. There's just one little problem. Eventually, they're going to run out of land, and meanwhile, they're alienating lots of farmers. Gao Yu is the China country director for Landesa, an international land rights advocacy group headquartered in Seattle. You take away farmers' land without their consent, but the law is already in place there for farmers' land rights. And farmers, you know, knowledge are increasing. You know, in five years, they may come back and sue. Maybe. But for now, many local governments order the courts not to take land dispute cases that could implicate them, and many local governments have taken to hiring thugs to enforce their claims. Chengdu resident Hu Jinchong has her own story to tell about that. She takes me to a patch of empty land in an urban neighborhood not far from the airport. The area is fast being developed. Her frail, aging in-laws stand there, looking forlorn. She says her family had a house here for generations until five years ago, when the local government took the land and demolished the house. Who says she was living a pretty comfortable life until then? But the officials offered her less for the property than she was getting per year, renting out spare rooms in her house. So she says she refused to sign anything, but thugs came along and beat her up and tore down her house anyway. She's been fighting this ever since, trying to get heard in court and being refused. She's been detained and beaten more times than she can count—a common way local governments deal with petitioners. Oh, and by the way. She had a property rights certificate for her house, but she says since the government took the land, they've changed the name of this neighborhood. She thinks it's so in the future they can say that the neighborhood listed on her certificate doesn't exist. The Chengdu government didn't make anyone available to talk to me about such issues, despite repeated requests over several weeks. The central government has launched investigations against several former Chengdu officials for corruption related to land sales. China's new leaders are aware of the resentment building in the countryside. The income gap between rural and urban China is dangerously wide and growing. 
and it's made worse by the fact that city dwellers can own and sell private property, while most rural dwellers cannot. The government would actually like more farmers to move to cities, which would free up small plots of land to be consolidated and used more efficiently. But pulling farmers to cities with jobs and services might work better than pushing them off their land into a precarious future. Chen Jiazza of the Chengdu Chinese Academy of Social Sciences says, "If local governments really wanted to serve the people, they'd support land reform." But、uh, as you know, in China, most local governments they have another task, and that is to turn in impressive economic growth figures with local leaders competing for kudos and promotions. Landessa's Gaoyu says, "Okay." But there's a different way to encourage growth than by just moving farmers off their land and into cities. If you build more infrastructure in the countryside, people feel drawn to the rural places. That's probably a more healthy development. And then farmers will make more money and will have more to spend on consumer goods. The government desperately wants Chinese to spend more on consumer goods, so it's a win-win-win. Allowing farmers to own the land outright might have an even bigger impact, but that's tricky under a government that still calls itself communist. Says Tom Miller, the author of the book *China's Urban Billion*. He says it goes back to when the communists first came to power. Because you know they took land away from these feudal、um, landlords, and as they saw them, they thought that the peasantry had been screwed essentially, and they gave it to the farmers, and in, you know, and it's collectively owned because supposedly that provides protection. The fact of the matter is, it actually means that it puts the power into the hands of the village chief or or whoever else、um, can be bribed, and actually it does not protect individual farmers at all. At lunch with some farmers south of Chengdu. Each dealing with a land dispute, I heard one of the things that's past due for change: the attitude of some local officials toward the people they're supposed to serve. This farmer says one local official told her, "The government is like a blanket, and you farmers fighting for your land rights are like fleas underneath it. No matter how hard the fleas try, they can't throw off the blanket." But. That hasn't stopped them from trying. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Chengdu. Tomorrow, China wants to turbocharge its economy, but the Communist Party just can't let go of money-losing state-run enterprises. That's part four of our series, China Past Due. Now back to that square in Berlin, across from the Jewish Museum. It's being named after an 18th-century German Jewish philosopher and his wife. That's because of a local rule requiring parity in naming streets after women and men. We asked you to name the couple, and the answer is Moses Mendelssohn and his wife Fromet Guggenheim. Mendelssohn was a figure of the Enlightenment, widely regarded for his work promoting tolerance between Germans and Jews. His wife Fromet Guggenheim was no lightweight either. She was a constant presence at her husband's salons, filled with some of the greatest thinkers of the German Enlightenment. Theirs was a marriage of love, unusual for the time, and now their union will be commemorated on the streets of Berlin as Fromet and Moses Mendelssohn Platz. Kind of a mouthful, but it does work. Coming up, Fado American style. That's on PRI.
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Here's another story about doping in sports, but this one's a little different. A court in Spain has convicted a doctor in a high-profile doping case. The court found that Eufemiano Fuentes administered blood transfusions to boost athletes' performance. That's simple enough, but the evidence itself may be hiding some additional information. Here's The World's Alex Galifant. Spanish police raided Dr. Fuentes' office in 2006. They found performance-enhancing drugs and about 200 bags of frozen blood and plasma. But now that the case is over, the presiding judge has ordered police to destroy all the related evidence, including those bags of blood. That's exactly what anti-doping authorities don't want. Because, well, whose blood is it? Dick Pound is a former head of the World Anti-Doping Authority, or WADA. Uh, It's embarrassing for Spain. I think everybody knows that if the samples are made available and identified, that we are going to be able to uncover quite a bit more doping than has been uh, uncovered so far. And not just in cycling. The convicted doctor says he worked with Spanish athletes in other sports too. Soccer, track and field, tennis and boxing. But we don't know who those athletes are. Maybe the bags of blood do. Richard Moore's written about doping in sports. He used to cycle for Scotland too. The air has been thick with rumour for many years now and and it does put a bit of a question mark against you know a lot of Spanish athletes, some of whom I'm sure feel very aggrieved at that because they've probably been wrongly suspected. More seriously, I think there's a question about the will within Spanish sport to really tackle this problem. And Spain needn't be tackling the problem on its own. So says Andy Parkinson, who leads Britain's anti-doping authority. Everything that WADA has been about over the last few years has been about sharing information and about making sure that the global fight is truly fought at a global level. But Spain does lag behind. In 2006, when Dr. Fuentes' office was raided, it wasn't even a crime in Spain to dope athletes. Fuentes was charged with putting athletes' lives in danger. The law's been changed now, but there's still this gap between Spain's criminal system and the wider expectations of global sport. Yesterday, Fuentes received a one-year prison sentence, likely to be suspended, and a four-year ban on practicing sports medicine. Not nearly enough for Jesus Manzano, a former cyclist whose allegations triggered the investigation. One year and four years. That says everything, he said. It's shameful. That may be the end of the story for Fuentes, but the bags of mystery blood from his office haven't been destroyed yet. Anti-doping authorities in Spain plan to appeal the ruling before they are. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. You could say our final story today started as an argument in a bar about what the saddest music in the world is. There were some good contenders, George Jones, the late George Jones, flamenco, tango, and fado. The mournful music of Portugal, fado, emerged as the winner, and what started as a discussion among friends has led to a new collaboration. Suzanne Hogan of KCUR has a story of the Kansas City band Fado Novato. Fado translates as fate. The music is tender, melancholic, ballads about lost love, the sea, being double-crossed, being younger. It 
sort of bittersweet. It's kind of the simultaneous yearning for things that are already past and things that are yet to come. That's Fadishta Shea Estes, singer for Fado Novato. For me, musically, it, it sounds like that even if you don't know what the lyrics are about, you immediately connect with the meaning without speaking Portuguese at all. Estes is joined by Jordan Shipley, who plays the Spanish guitar. Shipley found his way to Fado music through his love of Brazilian culture and music. He first got into Fado when he was asked to perform at a Portuguese-American wedding. Fado is generally an oral tradition, so there wasn't much written music to go from. So the couple gave Shipley some old albums. There weren't any books I could go from. I just had to use specific recordings that they sent me. All the work that I did for that, I was like, well, we definitely have to put this to use. <laughs> So Shipley and Estes, who helped with the research, decided, what the heck, let's start a band. Musician Bo Bledsoe was a part of the process, too, and the wedding, and became the third member of Fado Novato. They'd used a mandolin at the wedding, but soon realized that to get the Fado sound right, they needed one of the most important instruments, the Portuguese guitar. <laughs> who's an eclectic professional musician, had to learn his new instrument. The geography is just so different, I mean, because of the tuning. So yeah, it was confusing and scary and intimidating. It's just so culturally specific. So to capture that authentically is really kind of a daunting task when you think about you're really capturing the sort of essence of a people. And singer Estes got busy working on understanding the Portuguese language and accents. It was very tricky. You have the word E-S-T-E, which in Spanish would be este. The São Paulo Portuguese would be este. The Rio pronunciation would be este. And the Portugal pronunciation would be este. So you have the same word that means the exact same thing. And you have four different ways to pronounce it. And then there's the act of singing Portuguese in fado style. Portuguese is very nasal. It's very pushed into the front of the face. And a lot of this music in fado, particularly, you don't move up into the falsetto voice, into that very sing-song. You don't go up there. You keep it in this belty middle range. So I've got all this power and all this tone shaking the front of my face. And it started to give me really incredible headaches when I started. Now, Novato means beginner, which the group humbly admits is a way of presenting itself to the world of Fado in a respectful way. They're hoping to travel to Portugal in June for a month-long Fado festival. They also plan to put out a recording, which would be the first from an American Fado ensemble that's not Portuguese. Bledsoe also created a blog where the group has been documenting their process. The site has helped them to network with Fadishas around the world and has created an English-language resource for Fado music, which used to be hard to find. Because there's just nothing out there, so we're hoping that other people that are interested in Fado internationally will have kind of a place to go and read through our experience and uh, get music and ideas and, mm -hmm. and hopefully help them out. Even in, in all of its awkwardness at various times. <clears throat> For the world, I'm Suzanne Hogan in Kansas City. Ah!
We've got close-ups of Fado Novato and performance at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.